If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Armand Dodgar, co-founder and CTO of HashiCorp, where he brings his passion for distributed systems to the world of DevOps tooling and cloud infrastructure. Armand co-founded HashiCorp in 2012. The company has since scaled to over 1,000 employees, has more than 80 million open source downloads per year, and is valued at over $5 billion. Armand has been named to Forbes and Inc.'s 30 Under 30 for transforming enterprise tech. At HashiCorp, he has worked on Nomad, Vault, Terraform, Console, and Surf, and maintains the StatSite and Bloomed OSS projects. Prior to HashiCorp, Armand held technical roles at Amazon and a mobile ad company. He received his BS in computer science from the University of Washington, where he met HashiCorp's co-founder, Mitchell Hashimoto. Let's welcome Armand. Armand, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited and I've had so much fun learning about your business. So I'm just thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Um, So let's just keep it really simple. Let's start from the beginning. HashiCorp. What is it in your own words for everyone out there who maybe isn't as technically oriented as you are? Describe what the business does and what is it in a a simple paragraph? Sure. I think this, the easiest way to describe it is it's really kind of a portfolio company, right? So we have a, a whole set of tools, but it's all kind of with one mission in mind, which is how do we build applications and run them in a cloud environment, right? So I think if you look at you know the time frame, right, we sort of found a HashiCorp 2012, still early in the era of sort of adopting cloud, moving applications up and running them there. And it was really looking at what's that tooling gap? What are the things people need if they're going to run applications efficiently, securely, you know, at scale in a cloud environment. And those are the kind of problems that we're focused on solving. Awesome. So HashiCorp is now valued at well over $5 billion, which to any, you know, young aspiring entrepreneur out there is just truly mind blowing. But at some point, you know, you and Mitchell were the quintessential startup kids. Uh, You met your co-founder in college. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell us everything about those early days. How did you and Mitchell decide to go build this? And how did you come up with the idea? What was the moment where you said, huh, there's something interesting here? Yeah, you know, it's so much of the stuff is kind of, uh, you know, funny serendipity, right? We met each other totally randomly on a research project. So we both went to the University of Washington. Uh, We both ended up joining this research project uh, that was kind of looking at the challenge of, you know, hey, if everyone donates, you know, 10% of their computer's time uh, to these sort of scientific causes, things like, you know, protein folding. So, you know, can we find a cure to, you know, COVID or other sort of infectious diseases? Or can we scan sort of the airwaves and, you know, look for signs of extraterrestrial life? There was this sort of idea of what we call kind of a scientific compute cloud. It was sort of in vogue in 2007. And so we were on this research project that was figuring out, great, can you build a general purpose sort of scientific cloud that can work on all sorts of scientific problems, everything from physics things to biology, you know, et cetera. And so then the challenge that, you know, we found when we were working on this research project was a big, big part of it was, you know, it was running in cloud environments. 
And 2007, 2008 was very early, right? When it talks about kind of cloud adoption, Amazon just barely existed. They only had a few services. Everything was really raw. Uh, there wasn't much tooling available. And so we were spending most of our time sort of cutting our teeth on how do you actually operate in these environments? How do you use cloud in an effective way? You know, really we had no choice but to build our own tooling, right? It was just given the timing, there wasn't other things available. And so, you know, I think we had this sense that this, you know, the cloud was going to be immensely important from just our early exposure to it. You're like, wow, this really changes the paradigm. But at the same time felt like, okay, there is no tools for this. Like we're kind of in the wild west. And so in, in many ways it was sort of, you know, we experienced the problems firsthand and we were, we sort of scratching an itch, you know, at that time when we met in 2007, you know, I don't think we had any idea that it would turn into a business years later. It was just, you know, Hey, we're, you know, we're in college, we're trying to solve these problems and we, we can tell there's this sort of gap in the market. I love that. And, you know, I think when I was looking up all of your history, you took a, a small detour between having the idea for HashiCorp and actually starting the business. Walk us through a little bit of like that personal moment when you knew it was the time to pull the trigger and dive right in and do it full time. And what you just described was it was really, really early in this entire cloud space, cloud development, sort of wild, wild west with everyone needing to go build the tools. How did you go through that personal decision of being like, all right, I got to go all in on this and I, it needs to become my full-time job. What was that? What was the sign that told you, all right, this is, this is what I have to do? Yeah, it's a good question. So we ended up spending kind of years solving this problem, you know, while we we're at college multiple times over, right? So we had sort of multiple, I'd say failed attempts at it, you know, or maybe modestly successful attempts, you know, partially in the research project, you know, we started in kind of our, you know, if you, you kind of call it leisure time, we were working on, you know, versions of these tools as well. Uh, and kind of promoting them in the open source environment. And then from there, both of us sort of graduated. We went and ended up working at a mobile ad firm. So we moved down to San Francisco, you know, small startup environment. So you were kind of soaked in that startup ecosystem. And as part of that, we were spending a bunch of time with our peers asking them, hey, how are you guys adopting cloud? How are you building these applications, right? How do you solve these different problems? And what we kept hearing from people over and over again, whether it was you know, a small two-person startup or whether it was a large thousand-person company was, you know, we have a huge team of people building the stuff in-house. And so it was this moment where it was like, you know, I think two years into that, we sort of had this moment where we're like, hey, if every single person we're talking to, their answer is we're building it ourselves. you know, isn't there a market opportunity here? Shouldn't one company kind of build this tooling and everyone else sort of buys it or uses it rather than kind of have to custom develop it all? And so I think that was the sort of aha moment for us was sort of like waking up one day and realizing, you know, why is everyone reinventing the same wheel? You know, we have an opportunity to go solve this with HashiCorp and everyone else should just be a customer rather than have to go reinvent this stuff on their own. Right. So I think that was really what clicked for us. I want to go back to those early days of product market fit. You guys are an open source technology. You're obviously extremely technical founders. Can you walk through a little bit of the product development? How did you know that you were building the right thing? What were the signs from the market that said, huh? I mean, you just summarized it. You're like, everyone should be customers. This is what we should go build. Walk us through in a little bit more detail what those early days look like and when you really knew that the product was ready. Really, really good question. You know, I think one of the advantages we had in some sense was we were scratching our own itch, right? So like we were former users or customers, if you want to call it that. Uh, who sort of went to the dark side and said, okay, we'll become the vendor ourselves. And so in many ways, I think in the early days, what we were saying, you know, our internal mantra was build the tool that we'd want to use, right? So I think it was very much putting ourselves in the user scene saying, okay, well, what would be the tool if we were the customer that we'd want, right? And we were kind of building it for ourselves. You know, obviously that's 
you know, if you have a good intuition for this stuff, maybe that gets you 50% of the way, but you don't want to overbuild just something very specific to your own needs. So I think the other thing we did is we, you know, we had that ecosystem of folks around us and the network of people in kind of the valley. So we'd spend a lot of time with our peers in these other environments being like, hey, what do you think about this approach? What do you think if we try and solve it this way? Is this consistent to how you guys think about this? So we spent a lot of time with, with those folks in our network just to validate the idea, validate the approach with them. The other really nice thing about open source is those feedback loops are tight. You can launch the product in open source immediately. You have users who are you know, interacting with it, downloading with it, you know, contributing to it, opening issues and giving you feedback on it. So I think the advantage of being in the open source is you have that really, really tight kind of feedback loop with your community and your user base. And so you pretty quickly get the pulse, right? And I won't say that we got it right 100% of the time, right? Today, if you look back, you know, yes, we have a portfolio of you know, six, eight, 10 products, depending on how you count. But what you sort of don't see is the products that we've killed along the way, right? We didn't get it right 100% of the time. So a lot of the times, you know, we would release a thing, we felt like we thought it was right. And then we'd get to the market and their feedback is like, you know what? this is too complicated or this tool is too open-ended. It doesn't have enough of an opinion about how it should be used. And it sort of leaves too much as an exercise to the end user. And so with a lot of our tools, it kind of took us multiple iterations to really feel like, okay, great. We started, it was too opinionated. We need to make it less opinionated. Or maybe it was the opposite. It was not opinionated enough. So let's give it a little bit more structure. So it took us a few attempts, I think, on almost all the tools. And then I think when you really can tell that you kind of got it right is it shows up in the metrics. Right? So you either see it in the download numbers or the sign-up numbers or just the amount of feedback that you're getting on the project. Right, You go from the sort of slow, slow growth until you can kind of see that inflection point where you're like, okay, something has clicked. Something, you know, We're doing something right because you see this inflection uh, and you start to see that feedback grow and the community grow much more rapidly. So I think that's an important part of it is staying really close to community, iterating based on that feedback and you, know, you just kind of keep a razor eye on you know, what, what did these metrics look like? Armand, if you go back to some of those days, and I, I so appreciate you just like sharing a bit more of the, it's not like all the products were easy and that all made sense. Like we killed, you know, dozens of, you know, projects and, and things where we said this isn't working. Tell us what the hardest part was, because obviously in the rearview mirror, it seems a little, it seems pretty awesome and pretty easy and $5 billion business. And you have over 250 of the global 2000 as customers. So when you think about that, it's like, you're a really cemented business now. What was the hardest part of figuring it out? You're, uh, you're on the edge of a new frontier trying to figure out what the product should do. Oh my God. Uh, I wish there was only one hard problem. <laughs> um you know, I'd say there's probably a handful and they're all kind of related. You know, the one that I think back to myself that I, I wish I knew back in 2012 was the question of who our customer was, right? You know, I think today it's obvious, right? As you said, great, you know, we have 250 of the global 2000, you know, clearly we're an enterprise business today. That was not obvious to us at all, even as late as 2016, right? Four years into the founding, who our customers were. And so I think one of the hardest questions is really answering who is your customer? Uh, and it took us years, I think, to grapple with that question. And I think for a long time, our, our answer was everyone. Everyone is our customer, which is really the same as saying no one, <laughs> right? I think you really have to decide, hey, when you grow up, are we an SMB-focused business? Are we a mid-market-focused business? Are we an enterprise-focused business? And that changes everything from what's the product? What's the pricing? What's the go-to-market? Who are the people you hire to lead the business, right? So there's a ton of implication from that one question. So I think 
you know, figuring out the answer to that. And, you know, ultimately for us, it became, you know, hey, we're an enterprise business when we grow up. That was probably one of the hardest. You know, I think closely related, you mentioned we're an open source business, right? And I think, you know, today open source is a little bit more tried and true. Again, if you go back to even 2015, 2016, there weren't a lot of examples of successful open source companies, right? There was one, there was Red Hat. Uh, no one had ever been able to replicate their business model. And so I think there was this feeling of, you know, will there ever be more than one Red Hat? And what are the sort of viable paths to being a, a commercial open source business? And so I think that was a second really, really tough conversation in terms of what's the core business model, right? If you're building all your software and putting it for free on the internet, right, how do you build a business? You know, as my parents would always ask, like, do you make it up in volume? Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and so I think a lot of people grappled with this idea of like, if everything's free, how do you build it? build a company. So I think those were closely related. And I think saying, hey, we want to be an enterprise business when we grow up. And in addition to that, we're going to have a set of enterprise functionality that will be closed source that we sell on a, you know, it's an annual subscription license. That gave clarity to, to what the business model was, but it also was a fit to sort of who the customer is and how they think about procuring and, you know, operating software, right? So I think you had to kind of answer these questions together at the same time. And I think they really define ultimately sort of the soul and future of the business. You know, I, I I appreciate your vulnerability on kind of really understanding product market fit. Really, you said like really listen to your customer. How did you think about your go-to-market strategy, right? How did you decide what size business, what, you know, what revenue level they are at? How did you think about that business model? Can you just give us a little bit, if you have to do it and rewind over the last call it eight years, what did that look like as you continue to tinker through the building blocks of understanding your go-to-market strategy, but also how you charge, how you thought about um, what would be best for them and best for you as you grow out the business. This goes back to kind of the earlier comment on, you know, pick your customer. I think uh, until we knew it was an enterprise customer, you know, I'll be honest, it was a hodgepodge and it was a mess. <laughs> we were all over the place. I think once we had that clarity to say, okay, enterprise is our customer, then I think it, a lot of the go-to-market questions became a lot simpler, right? Because I think, you know, one of the things that's kind of, you know, stays true kind of regardless of, you know, what generation of technology we're talking about is that the top kind of 2,000, 5,000 companies, they represent 80% of all spend in IT. And so I think then it becomes clear to say, okay, you know, if you look at these, you know, companies, there's, it tends to be a consistency on what industries are more progressive than others, right? So great, you're going to cloud, it's this replatforming to a new generation. You're going to have, for example, your financial customers, they're going to do that migration before, you know, energy customers or manufacturing customers, right? It tends to be that you have these early adopters and some of these sectors are more progressive. So I think the first thing for us was to say, okay, what are those sectors that are more progressive? It's the high techs, it's media, it's finance. Let's go focus on them because we know they're going to be the early adopters for cloud technology. And then given that we have this focus on enterprise, we need to go out and build sort of an enterprise sales team, right? You know, if you're JP Morgan, you're not going to, you know, fill out a credit card online and procure millions of dollars worth of software, right? You have the sort of classic Rolex wearing, you know, enterprise salesperson that needs to go out there, form a relationship, you know, spend years with some of these customers uh, before they finally convert into being sort of a paying customer. And so that was then the investment we made was to go bring in a VP of sales who understood how to build an enterprise motion, really build out an outbound enterprise sales team, build an outbound field marketing team, and focus in on those customers that are, you know, A, in that kind of top fortune, you know, 5,000 category, but B, the ones that are in sectors that we know are early movers, right? You don't want to go focus on manufacturing as a first adopter of cloud. 
No, that that's very well said. And, you know, I, I, I want to think about this. So for everyone listening, Armand raised $350 million of venture funding. Can you walk us through just a little bit of like what you learned around your own venture funding and, and any advice you would have that you would tell people not to do that you've learned through the process of, of, of raising capital? That's a great question. Yeah, I think there's been a bunch of learnings. I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting to us is, you know, if you're early enough to a market, uh, people won't necessarily understand it, right? I remember when we did our Series A fundraise, you know, we went to countless investors who were like, are you guys crazy? Like you're investing in like infrastructure, like enterprise focused, like backend stuff. Like this market is ice cold. It's dead. There'll never be money in it. Like you guys are doomed to failure, right? Literally people told us we're doomed to failure verbatim. And so I think, you know, part of that is not to be discouraged, right? I think if you're early enough, you know, sometimes I think the insight we had, right, is we were practitioners on the ground floor. We'd use this cloud technology. It was obvious to us that cloud was going to be an important future. But remember, investors just aren't that close to these markets. Their job is professional money managers. They're not the end users. They don't operate things. So it's only obvious to them once it's sort of obvious to the whole market, <laughs> right? And so if you're early enough to these things, you know, right, you might have a signal that others don't. So I think one piece of it was not to be discouraged. The second piece of it is, you know, investors, you know, some great advice I heard was, you know, be more careful as you pick your investors than as you're picking your spouse, because you can always get a divorce from your spouse. That's <laughs> a lot harder with an investor. <laughs> I'm only laughing because I got the exact same advice where it was like, you can't divorce your investor easily. And I was like, got it. No, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and I think there's a, a truth to that. So I think for us, part of what we selected on was, is this a team, an investment team that A, has you know, conviction in what we're doing and actually believes in the space, believes in the company, believes in the vision. But B, are these people we'd actually want to work with over the next, you know, at this point approaching, you know, 10 years, right? Because the reality is you're going to spend a lot of time with them. You can't get a divorce. Uh, and so you better have sort of a, a good professional working dynamic with them. So I think for us, what was really important is, you know, don't just say, you know, all cash is green. You know, yet that's true to a degree. But the reality is you have to work with these people. They're going to be on your board. They're going to have huge you know, influence over how the company operates over possibly a decade or more. So you want to be really careful in terms of who it is that you're working with in addition to just maximizing you know, what are the terms you're optimizing for. The other piece is it's a big market. So even though we talked to dozens of investors who told us we're crazy and doomed to failure, it really only takes one investor to believe in you, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm, I'm only smiling because we all get the same advice. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just amazing how consistent, um, you know, in so many ways, entrepreneurship is an apprenticeship model, right? It's one entrepreneur passes their learnings to another, but I'm just giggling because it's basically the same advice that I got eight years ago also. I want to quickly stop for a second. HashiCorp was a remote first organization long before COVID hit, which by the way, is pretty wild. I, I want to say that like, Major kudos to you for being such like a visionary leader on that. One, why'd you decide to do it years ago? And then what was COVID like for you guys, given that you were already fully remote? You have a thousand plus employees now. Walk through a little bit of like, when did you decide to go remote first? How long ago? And what were your major learnings as somebody, you know, the rest of us are going to be following you over the next decade as you've been doing it forever. What are the two or three things that you guys swear by that help a remote first team thrive? So it goes back all the way to the beginning. So even when we were three employees, we had three locations. So we were sort of hyper, hyper remote from, from the initial kind of inception of the business. So I think there was, you know, maybe a few drivers in terms of why we, why we went hyper remote. One was, 
you know, the alignment to the open source community, right? So we were building all of our tools in open source, right? We were hiring our initial, you know, employees were almost entirely all kind of from open source communities that were contributing to our products, people we knew through that. And so I think one aspect of open source is that it isn't geographically centered, right? Anywhere. It is this global community. People are contributing from all over. It's happening in different time zones. So I think there's a certain process to how open source gets built. It tends to be very document driven, very asynchronous, kind of globally distributed. And so we said, hey, if we're going to be an open source company, why don't we model ourselves around these open source communities? We should operate the same way. We should be document driven. Everything should be async. We'll hire all over the world, right? We'll sort of model our own communities internally. And so that was a very conscious decision. And I think one of the things that, you know, there's a few impacts. One is it allowed us to hire people anywhere, right? So if we say, great, there's some really great talent. And, you know, some of our, you know, an engineer I work with, you know, very closely, he was, lives in a rural village, you know, in the middle of nowhere in England, right? You're like, okay, that's the kind of person that you can hire in this model that otherwise, if you're like, hey, I need you to uproot your whole life and move to San Francisco, you know, they're going to say like, you know, thanks, no thanks, right? So part of it is you get to attract a lot of these folks that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. The second part is that it lets you be a lot more pay competitive, right? Anyone who's hired in the Bay Area or New York or Seattle, right? You, you know, it's sort of a bloodbath. Uh, and so it lets you kind of go to these markets that are, you know, maybe a little less overheated. And so you can kind of stretch your budget a little further, especially as a startup. So I think that was an important piece for us. And third was knowing that, you know, hopefully if things go well with Hatchbrook, we're going to be a global business, right? The nature of our customer base is global. And so how does this sort of tee us up to be, you know, in the best, best kind of shape to succeed, right? So there was a bunch of these motivators, I think, early on, even when we were really, really small. And so then if you kind of fast forward to COVID, you know, the nice thing for us is by the time COVID hit, we were already 90% distributed. And when I say 90%, I mean, you know, 10% of our staff was based on our headquarter in, in San Francisco tends to be our sort of general administrative function. So legal, HR, finance, those were all based on the San Francisco office. But all of our processes, all of the way we worked, were still remote oriented, right? So even when we had to go COVID, it's like, well, great. All of our meetings were already on Zoom. All of our communications were already on Slack. All of our decisions were already in Google Docs that we sort of emailed around. So the shift for us from an internal process perspective from 90 to 100% remote was you know, basically nothing. I don't know, it took the company maybe a week to adjust if that it was it was actually a relatively painless adjustment for us in that sense and you know i think the lessons learned would be you know the way i like to describe it is it's really easy to do remote when you're at one of the two extremes and what i mean by that is you're either 100% centralized or you're nearly 100% distributed right when you're at those poles things work really well i think the hard things are when you're in the middle so i think as people start to come back to the office as people come back to kind of normal life I think being really conscious of how do you navigate that? Uh, because I think if you end up in a situation where you say, great, six out of the eight members of my team are in the office and two of them are remote, it's really easy to fall back into, hey, we'll just have a conversation in person or I'll just pull you know, Alice and Bob aside in the hallway and we'll have a quick conversation about something. And then all of a sudden you create this divide where it's like the kind of first class employees are in the office and they have, they're inside the information loop. And your third class employees, like, you know, they feel like they're in Siberia right? You know, they're outside of the loop. They're not sort of part of those conversations. They're not being incorporated into the process and they feel like sort of a third-class citizen. So I think, you know, being really, really conscious about how do you avoid creating that kind of a divide as you come back, right? And being conscious on if we're going to do remote, we have to commit an entire team has to be remote. It can't be that, you know, one third of the team is remote. 
right? So I think being really, really conscious about that. And those are rules that we even imposed internally. It was like, if I have two people on the same team, they can't sit next to each other in the office, right? They have to be in different parts of the floor or on different floors to make sure that they don't have that kind of casual interaction and exclude the rest of their team. So it's like little things like that, that I think make a huge difference. It's amazing to me, you know, I think as a culture and society, we're going to be adjusting as much as we can to get used to it. Um, and I feel like this is an important moment for people like you who have already learned all of the different crooks and crannies and making it actually work properly. We like need to get you yelling out there, giving everyone advice as quickly as we can. Armand, last big question I want to ask you, you know, you sit in an incredibly unique sort of perch, if you want to call it, around the future of technology. Um, what predictions do you have right now? You know, you're a betting man. You've got to tell me one or two things that's just obvious to you that's going to be the future that touches HashiCorp today. One is, I think, you know, especially given COVID, I think we're going to see an acceleration of the trend to cloud, right? I think one of the, you know, if, if nothing else, I think it's pulled things forward you know, three to five years in terms of the adoption, people are realizing, hey, you know, why am I operating my own data centers? Why am I, you know, well, how am I going to do this better than Amazon or Google or Microsoft are going to do it? Uh, and so I think that's going to pull forward that trend. I think the second one is on, you know, and this might be sort of obvious is on the remote work side. I don't think, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, the office is officially dead, you know, long live remote. I don't think that's going to be our reality. I think the reality will be a bit more of, we'll see people loosen up their work from home policies. Maybe you end up working in the office four days a week rather than five days a week. You know, I do think it's going to be a hard shift for a lot of people to say, hey, we're going to go to fully remote, no office. I think a lot of people like the office. I think a lot of companies' cultures are built around having synchronous meetings and having everybody in one place. So my guess is I think, uh, you know, the office will be a lot more robust than people assume. <laughs> I like it. No, I, I, I really like it. Um, give me one more prediction. Just one more thing that's so obvious to you. You know, I think the other piece that's super obvious to me is, I, you know, SaaS, I don't think is going to slow down. I mean, I think one of the trends that we'll see accelerate is people don't want to operate infrastructure. They don't want to operate software themselves. So I think, you know, as founders, as entrepreneurs thinking about what are these business problems that exist that we can kind of turn into a SaaS and deliver as a service to companies, I think that trend is only going to accelerate, right? And I think we're seeing companies really realize their value isn't in this kind of undifferentiated lift. Uh, it's being able to kind of, you know, integrate it, provide a better user experience, right? It's building on top of that. And so to the extent that they can leverage software as a service to get there, you know, I think that trend is only going to accelerate. And I think to us, what's been an interesting indicator is even some of the most critical, you know, things, you know, for example, we manage some of the crown jewels in terms of the secrets customers have in terms of data encryption keys and their core database passwords and cloud credentials, even these sort of keys to the kingdom, they want to consume those from us as a software as a service. So I think the appetite for all of this stuff, even the most high risk business critical things to be delivered as a service has dramatically changed over the last two years. And I think that's going to open up a lot of new opportunities. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more, 
Or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Armand, I feel like I want to ask you so many more questions, but I want to transition a little bit to you as a founder. I want to switch gears and just talk a little bit about, you know, your own entrepreneurial journey. Was it obvious to you always that you would end up here? Is this, are you like an accidental entrepreneur and founder? Tell us a little bit about kind of when you were young, what were you like and does it match what you're doing today? Yeah. You know, that's a good, that's a funny question. You know, in some sense, I wouldn't have expected it at all. You know, when I first was going, you know, when I was in college, I did an internship at a few, you know, big tech companies and I hated it. You know, I hated it so much that I was like, you know what? I don't think I ever want to work in industry. And so I actually changed course entirely. Uh, I ended up applying to grad school. Uh, and so when I first moved to San Francisco, it was not to join a company. It was actually to go get my PhD. And so I had sort of gone full, you know, 180 the other way and said, hey, I'm going to focus on a career in academia. I'm going to do research and stay on sort of that track. You know, industry is not for me. Uh, and then, you know, my co-founder Mitchell, you know, through his insistence, you know, he pestered me night and day into, you know, hey, the startup I'm at is so cool. You have to talk to the team. You have to see what we're up to. And so my deal with him was like, if I interview, you agree to leave me alone uh, and let me focus on academia. And he's like, okay, done deal. And so, you know, I finally caved and did this interview mostly so he'd get off of my back. Uh, and I was like, okay, let me meet the team and figure out what they're up to. And I'm, you know, I probably don't care. I'm going to continue working on my PhD. And I ended up loving the team. And I think I, I was so, I think I was a little jaded from my experience with big tech and sort of, you know, what it's like to work at these sort of ginormous companies. And I don't think I'd, I didn't have that exposure to what a startup was like, or, you know, these smaller, more nimble environments. And I loved it, right? I loved the energy of the team. I loved the passion. I loved that working dynamic of it felt like a small family, right? At the time when I joined, it was like an eight person, nine person company. And so I ended up deferring for a year. So I left my PhD program. I deferred, joined for a year. A year later, they call me up and they're like, hey, so you have to decide, are you coming back or not? Uh, and I said, you know, no, give my spot away. I'm going to stay here. Uh, and, and I sort of ended up catching the bug. Uh, and so, you know, it's funny because I think if you'd asked me, will you start a company? I would say, absolutely not. I wouldn't have even wanted to work in industry, right? My plan was I'll go be a professor. So, you know, I think life is very unpredictable <laughs> that way. That's amazing. I just had the founder of Databricks on and very similar. He was like, I'm an academic. That's what I'm going to do. And I feel like what we're basically proving is that technical academics are very good at building multi-billion dollar businesses. Um, <laughs> I want to go a little bit to you, you know, you're at the cutting edge of data technology and you continue to innovate. How do you hone your skills? What are your hacks to just make sure you stay super relevant? I think it's a, it's a few things, right? One is I spend a lot of time just like trying to stay current on the latest and greatest. And I know even that alone is <laughs> at the rate technology moves is, a, is sort of a, a tough task, but a lot of it's staying close to, Hey, what are the new tools and tech technologies that are coming out? What are the trends? You know, I, so I spend a lot of time with customers, a lot of time with our users, right? So whether that's, you know, in customer meetings, whether it's going to user conferences, but trying to keep a pulse on just, hey, how are things evolving, right? What is people's opinion on what's the right tool set? What's the right methodology? What's the right philosophy of, you know, infrastructure management or data management or machine learning, right? And so I think a lot of it just comes to, you know, trying to keep a pulse on all of these things. And, you know, I think there's no, uh, there's no easy, easy answers, right? There's just so much information that a lot of it comes down to just, 
you know, putting in the time. You have to put in the time to, you know, understand the technology and, and where practitioners are going. Give us a little bit of your um, personal kind of hacks on sleep, exercise, meditation, you know, building a business, a thousand employees, all remote, scaling, 350 million raised, 5 billion evaluation. How do you stay sane? <laughs> you know, so actually I'll say this, one of my silver linings of COVID has been gaining sanity, uh, which I think is not the usual for most people. You know, I think prior to COVID, you know, if you looked at my life, I spent 75 to hundred percent of my time on the road. And so I basically, <laughs> I would, dinners were at airport lounges. I would sleep in some random hotel. Uh, and so it was sort of a life on the road, right? Because it's just kind of, you know, you're, you're going to where the customers are. So if the customer is in, you know, Toledo, Ohio, great. You're going to Toledo, Ohio, and then you're you know doing a road trip to Detroit. And so I think that's a little bit of, you know, when you talk to folks who, who sell to enterprise, that's a little bit of the nature of the role, right? You know, you're putting in, you know, 350,000 miles a year, you know, you're flying to where the customers are. So, you know, I'd say on, on average, I would not look to me as a, as an example of work-life balance <laughs> or sanity. Uh, you know, you're sort of putting in the miles. I think with COVID, it's actually been easier. It's like I sleep in the same bed more than two nights in a row. Uh, you know, I bought a rowing machine and that's been great. So, you know, if, if anything, I feel like I lost the COVID-15. <laughs> that's, first of all, that's amazing. And one, I'm happy for you to have a saner life. Uh, do you think we'll travel as much going forward? What's your prediction? You know, I think, I think it's going to be a blend. I think some of these meetings, I think people are realizing you can do them remote. There's really no point in flying in just for a one hour meet and greet type of thing. On the flip side, I think at the core of what you're doing when you're doing enterprise sales is it's about trust, right? You're making, you're establishing a relationship. You're building trust with an executive. They're making the decision to say, I'm betting on HashiCorp for the next 10 years of my you know, technology or the next 10 years of my infrastructure. And so I think it's really, really hard to build that trust over Zoom. It's still not the same as being in a room with someone, shaking their hand, you know, taking them to dinner, you know, being able to make that statement of, you know, hey, you can take a bet on me. You can trust me. I'm going to be here and invest in your success, right? And I, so I think that class of meeting is going to be very hard to replicate over Zoom. And I think you're going to, you know, will it take us a year for things to go back to normal? Probably. Uh, but I think that that trust building is so essential and so human that it's going to come back. I want to end quickly on a quick fire round of just a few things. And we're going to start with just when you look back at everything you built at HashiCorp, what's your pinch me moment? What's the moment where you said, holy smokes, I can't believe that just happened. <laughs> you know, honestly, I still have that every day. Uh, you know, it's still surreal to me. You know, I think the moment where it really hit is because we're so remote, you don't get to see the whole company. But once a year, we get all of our employees together in, in what we call our, you know, HEX, our all employee summit. And uh, I won't forget the, you know, first time we did that, where we had crossed, I think, like, I think we were like 400 people at Hex maybe two or three years ago. Uh, and we showed up and we get into the keynote room to do the opening keynote and you get on stage and all of a sudden you see, you know, 400 employees in front of you in this auditorium and you're like, holy cow, like, this is real. Uh, you know, I think that was sort of my, that's when it really hit me because all of a sudden you kind of see it, you're physically there, you see everyone in one room and you're like, you know, it's different than when you just have a bunch of people on Slack and, it, you know, it's, it, you know, it's not, it doesn't hit you physically in the same way. I love that. Um, it's Sunday night. You're looking at the week ahead and you're super excited about something. You're just electric. Why? You know, well, for me, what really energizes me is getting to spend time with customers. I, I love, you know, those, those meetings when you get to, 
you know, some of it is the introductory meeting where you're sort of still pitching them, but sometimes it's an established customer and they're like, hey, we love this technology. We're betting the future of our technology platform on it. You know, you guys are how we're migrating to cloud. And you know, they share some of these use cases with you that are just, you know, they blow your mind of, hey, every car that we build is going to be connected to the cloud and all of that's going to run on your infrastructure. Every credit card transaction that's going to happen, you know, that's going to be secured through your software, right? Every stock trade, that's going to be settled through, you know, technology HashiCorp provides. And to me, that's just so cool to be a part of those things, right? To get to learn about what the customers are doing with it and how they're being in, enabled by this technology. You know, it takes that from, hey, what is what, do you, what are you even working on? Because sometimes it can be so abstract. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's really concrete. It's like, hey, we're enabling them to, to build this next generation of digital car experience, right? Uh, and things like that to me are, are sort of deeply exciting. Um, I love it. Last question, what's your favorite interview question? Something that when you're trying to figure out if somebody should be your teammate, join the team, how do you really get to know somebody? What's your favorite thing you like to ask? You know, I, for me, it's really about understanding people's motivations, right? So, you know, it's almost the same question you just asked me, but I love to get, get under, in, you know, under people's skin and understand, hey, what gets you motivated? What gets you pumped up? What are the things that you're really excited about? Uh, and I think getting at those people's motivation, because for me, the people who really succeed, especially at Hashicorp, tend to be the ones that have a deep intellectual curiosity and sort of a deep passion for the technology and the space that we're in, right? Uh, and so to me, it's like, if, if those are really what motivate and drive someone, those tend to be, you know, good signs that they'll be successful at HashiCorp. Armand, I absolutely love this. I could talk to you forever. Uh, final, final question here is pay it forward to one startup, one new thing through the last year of COVID. It can be anything, a product, a new tool, um, a new company, new startup, a new physical product, anything that you've fallen in love with that we should all know about and pay it forward. You know, I actually really like the folks at Airtable and the product they're building. Uh, to me, I think, you know, the, I think that the next challenge we face is how do you bring in non-developers into the digital, you know, uh, ecosystem and the digital kind of economy. And so I think tooling that allows you to bring sort of that low code, no code, allow people to build apps, create value without having to be software developers is hugely exciting to me. Uh, and I think they're doing a really, really awesome job with their product. Armand, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about HashiCorp, check out HashiCorp.com and you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Montobel. Armand, it has been such a pleasure, a sincere thank you. Thank you so much. It was great.